Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Here's something that did not change. The Toronto Raptors, I told you before game three, that just because Golden State got that split in Toronto and they were going back home, did not mean that series was over. It did not mean that Toronto was going to roll over and look for a nice place to die. And they didn't. These dudes love the taste of their own blood. They got punched in the face in game two in their own building. And they have been landing haymakers of their own ever since. They're an absolute machine. Klay Thompson didn't go in game three. Steph Curry put up 47 and the Raptors still ran them right out of the gym. Klay Thompson and Kevon Looney somehow came back for game four. Somehow they came back for game four. They both play their asses off. And Golden State still gets hammered. The Warriors had a lead in the first half, but they were not playing that well. They were making mistakes. They let Toronto hang around. The Raptors were biding their time. Kawhi couldn't have been more patient. And then in the second half, Toronto hit the afterburners. And the Warriors gassed out. Sure, at some point... It was all going to catch up with Golden State. And you might try to argue that Toronto is just healthier. And they are that. But you really can't argue that Toronto is not the better team. They are right now. There's no debating that. Not at this time. Again, I hate to say say that I told you so, but I told you the Raptors were not just Kawhi and company. I mean, sure, Kawhi is putting up really stupid numbers in the postseason. Jordan-esque numbers in a postseason. I mean, honestly, that good. You can mention the two of them in the same sentence legitimately. Jordan and Kawhi. You can as it relates to Kawhi and what he's doing in the postseason. He's doing Jordan-esque things. And they're winning because he's doing that. But he's not the only reason why. Because unlike the Warriors, who are just not getting contributions from anybody other than Steph and Clay, pretty much everybody is stepping up for the Raptors. Serge Ibaka. An absolute force. 20 points, four boards, two blocks. He did all of that in 22 minutes. And then there's Fred Van Vliet. I mean, holy crap. FVV takes an accidental shot to the head from Sean Livingston, the kind of shot that could typically end your night. He's lying on the floor, bleeding out with parts of his tooth in his mouth, some on the court. He goes to the locker room. He gets seven stitches in his face. He comes back to the bench, and then he's ready to reenter the game. They didn't need him. By that time, they'd blown the game wide open. But still, he dropped this quote after the game. You know, losing a tooth is not fun. And and so, uh, you know, obviously the stitches I can deal with. But uh, I was more upset that that I I could have the remnants of my teeth floating around in my mouth as I was laying there on the ground. There you go. I mean, that's pretty much who these guys are. That's their identity. They're not just good. They're tough as hell. Really freaking tough. And they're running into a Warriors team that's banged up, busted up, and looks absolutely spent. I mean, meanwhile, the Raptors have put all that talk about what might happen in the future to the side. Because the future is right now. They're one win away from an NBA title. You want to talk about free agency or about how Kawhi reportedly bought some property in Toronto? I don't. I don't want to have that conversation. You want to talk about this exchange? Because I don't want to hit on this either. There was, uh, you know, some speculation earlier this week that uh, you had purchased property in the city. I'm just curious if you wanted to uh, clarify if, in fact, that actually occurred. No, it didn't. Didn't have me yet. No. You want to freak out about yet? 
You want to lose your mind over those three letters? You want to try and parse them for what they mean? Man, take that someplace else. There will be plenty of time for that. Now, if you want to talk about his new nickname, The Board Man, we can do that. And I know The Board Man gets paid. But I don't care who's going to be paying him next month. I'm not about that. Not now. Let's talk about now. Let's talk about how Toronto, Toronto is one win from an NBA championship. And they know it, even if they aren't showing it or acting like it. Did you see the Raptors walking off the floor Friday night? Did you see them walking off the floor at the end of game four? While Raptor fans were in Oakland taking over Oracle and partying, there was not a single Raptors player celebrating. They had just won two straight on the road against the two-time defending champs. They're 48 minutes from an NBA championship, and yet it seems like nobody's even happy. You couldn't even find a smile. That's how locked in they are. About the only humor from them was their Twitter account, dropping a full house parody featuring the players in the opening credits and the caption, successful business trip to the Bay Area, hashtag we the North. And if the team is locked in, you know their fans are. (laughs) I mean, hell. Fans were reportedly lining up for Jurassic Park on Friday. The game is tonight. They were lining up on Friday. Fans at Jurassic Park on a Friday night to watch game four. They didn't go home. They got right back in line when the horn sounded. They didn't look to take a night off. They didn't think, yeah, maybe I'll go home, get a shower, rest up, get prepared for tonight. No, they took the pickup game rules to heart. Winners stay. Oh, our team just won game four. Let's get back in line. Let's run this thing back again. No wonder Masai went to visit them last night at midnight. These fans run real. I mean, that's incredible. Again, these people were camping out not to attend the game. Not on the off chance that they might score a ducket or two. They were camping out days in advance to watch the game outside in Jurassic Park. Who the hell does that? Raptor fan. That's who. They're unbelievable. And now their team is a game away from shocking the Warriors and the rest of the world. And the only ones who aren't shocked are the players and the coaches in that locker room. Oh, and my man Masai, who put it all together. And if you thought that city and that arena were allowed for games one and two for the finals, that's nothing compared to what's going to happen in game five tonight. A chance to beat the Warriors and win their first NBA title in franchise history at home. Look the hell out. Dan Wojcicki is my guest. Dan, good to have you back. How are you? Jim, a male dog named B. Arthur. Better yet, I stand corrected. That makes it even better. Well done. Very well done. All right, so Dan, do this for me. Set the scene. What is the mood like in Toronto today with the Raptors one win away from a world championship? I mean, it's almost like a national holiday here. Um, you know, you see everywhere you go, you see people wearing We the North shirts. You see um, Raptors gear everywhere, people posing for pictures outside of Scotiabank Arena. The lines have been, um, to get into Jurassic Park tonight, have been, you know, kind of active for over a day. Um, There's tremendous excitement here. This is an opportunity that doesn't come along often in this country 
Um, it's never come along in basketball. And as Canada has become a little bit more of a player, um, we've seen talent, obviously, come out of Canada. Really good players, guys that have gone number one overall in the draft, guys that are making all-rookie teams, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, the sport has gotten bigger and bigger here, and, and this is a real, um, this is like a crowning achievement moment um, for kind of professional basketball in Canada. Dan Wojcik joining us. He writes for the Los Angeles Times. So, Dan, go back to Friday night for a moment, if you would. The Warriors mm-hmm. were down 2-1. Klay Thompson and Kevon Looney, though, returned from injury. Klay's yeah. out there battling his ass off. But then the second half, the Raptors took over. What did you make of that performance? I mean, as far as like Clay and uh, Looney go, like both those guys were <clears throat> were tough as nails, right? I mean, Looney is a guy who's playing essentially with a broken collarbone, which is just insane. Um, you know, a, a wildly painful injury, and, and Clay Thompson's hamstring can't be in good shape, and, and you know he gutted it out. Um, I think they ran out of gas in the second half. I thought the worst thing that could have happened in this series happened to the Warriors in Game Three which was that they didn't get blown out by the Raptors. Um, and the, the game when they were so shorthanded, uh, they, they hung around just enough where Steve Kerr could never really hit the eject button. Um, Steph Curry ends up playing over 40 minutes, and, and they weren't just, you know, your average 40 minutes in them. I mean, this was heavy usage. He had to kind of do it all for 43 minutes on the court. And you saw it in the second half. You saw his legs go. You saw him late on rotations. You saw him making really bad decisions defensively, I think it was physical and mental fatigue. And, 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 you know, when you're playing a team like the Raptors, which are led by sort of a basketball-playing cyborg, um, you, you know, and Kawhi Leonard, who, who just kind of keep coming and keep coming and don't seem to be affected by anything, um, you, you know, that's what happens. Like, they, they just kind of – it wasn't just that they beat them in the second half. They made it look really easy, Jim. And, and that, to me, I think was why – most NBA people walked out of the arena that night thinking, you know, this is probably going to be over in five. I, I think, you know, maybe it's because we've had a few days. Um, you know, maybe it's because Kevin Durant's probably coming back tonight. I, I think some of those expectations maybe have been a little recalibrated a little bit. Um, but but there was a feeling, certainly, after game four, that the Warriors had been beaten by a better team. Hey, are you looking for new ways to get in your cardio between a busy schedule? I've got your answer. The Peloton, the Peloton bike. Why does men's health call the Peloton bike, quote, the best cardio machine on the planet? I'll tell you why. Because it is. I know this to be true because I have one. I love my Peloton. I bought my Peloton long before Peloton became a sponsor on our podcast. And let me tell you something. That Peloton bike has paid for itself many times over. It will make you rethink the way you look at cycling classes. It's an immersive, empowering, heart-pounding cardio experience that you have to try to believe. You can work up a sweat with some world-class instructors riding right by your side. You get real-time motivation and coaching from a roster of unique styles and personalities. And you can keep your workout fresh. You can change up your cardio with rides that span a variety of lengths, difficulty levels, themes, and music genres. Up to 12 live classes every single day and thousands on demand are waiting peloton right now is offering a limited time offer get 100 off accessories when you purchase the peloton bike and get a great cardio workout at your home go to onepeloton.com that's onepeloton.com use the promo code rome and get started we're talking to Dan Wojcicki. I said the same thing myself. It's hard to argue that they're not the better team right now, Toronto. Yeah. Dan, what about Kevin Durant? So he did practice yesterday. How significant was that, and what do you take from that? 
Well, all along, it's been sort of like the prelude to him playing, right, was that he was never going to play unless he got a practice in. We, we don't know exactly what he did. Um, you know, Steve Kerr termed it today, a little of this, a little of that, some three-on-three, maybe some five-on-five work. Um, but it needed to happen if he was going to play, right? So he, he at least kind of checks that box off. So, you know, when it comes to time to make the game-time decision tonight, um, you, you know, I, I, th- I think he plays. Um, I think he's done kind of enough to, to try and, and take a look because there's no tomorrow for this team. There's no tomorrow for this dynasty. Um, if there's a way that he can play without doing, you know, real damage to his body, um, I think he'll be on the court, you know, and it's tricky. It's kind of interesting, too, because this is sort of in some ways some of the things that helped push Kawhi Leonard out the door, right, um, in San Antonio, was that nobody knows how hurt you are, only you. And I think um, this is one of those things where the way they've sort of handled this injury by being vague, by kind of hinting that maybe he'd be back, you know, for game four, or maybe even game three, he's going to travel and do all of this stuff. Um, instead of just being definitive with the severity of the injury, I think it's opened up a lot of doors to questions that didn't need to be asked. You know, I mean, if the guy tore, I mean, like, tore ligaments in his calf, um, which, you know, it certainly seems like at this point he's missed over a month, that he probably tore something, they had just kind of set that right away. Um, I, I think kind of expectations for this and, and some of this stuff would be lessened, you know. Um, but because of the way that it's, it, it feels like it's been close for a little bit, I think if Durant plays, a lot of people would go out there tonight and expect him to be, you know, Kevin Durant. And we've seen with the Marcus Cousins in this series how hard it is when you've missed real time to just kind of come back and just be yourself. You know what I mean? And just be the guy that left. Um, if if he gives them 20 points tonight, I, I think, you know, that that's that's a performance. Um, you know, if he if he if he's able to be effective. Um, you know, and be more than just a decoy, be more than just someone who makes the, the Raptors think more on defense, um, that'll be a huge win for Golden State. Um, and, and if he's able to do that and they win a game, obviously, you know, it, it, in a 3-1 series, momentum shifts really quickly. Now you've got three more days for him to get healthy. You've got, you know, another game at Oracle Arena where they don't want to go out the way they did in game four. And, and if they win that game, I think game seven becomes a coin flip and all the pressure is right back on the Raptors. So tonight's a monumental game for Toronto, Kevin Durant or not. We're talking to Dan Wojcicki. There is so much to unpack in that. That's a really good answer. It's just weird though, right? It's just weird. Like I I really have no idea, Dan, what it is. Like if there was a tear, why wouldn't the team say that? Or maybe it's gamesmanship. But let me ask you this. If Clay Thompson came back as quickly as he did from his injury, in fact, he didn't even want to be held out. He didn't want to miss a game at all. Looney was supposed to be done for the finals, but he comes back. And as you point out, that's a really painful injury. Iguodala is battling through a calf injury. I understand that every injury is different, but have you picked up any sense from the Warriors players that they might be at all frustrated that Durant is not back yet? Yeah, I mean, there's been some rumblings. You, you know, I, I think um, with sort of the caveat that, that, like you said, I mean, every injury is different and nobody knows, you know, and players know this, no one knows but yourself. But, like, you know, you, you could kind of hear it in things some people said, and I, I don't think Clay Thompson is talking about Kevin Durant when he said, like, I would do anything to be back for the finals. You know, I, I don't think that's him, you know, kind of like subtweeting or whatever. Um, but, but, I, but I do think, though, it, it's an interesting sort of um, contradiction, right, an interesting contrast. You've got a guy like Clay Thompson, um, you know, doing everything he can. Steve Kerr said, you know, he'd have to be half dead, um, and he'd still want to play. You, you know, you've got 
a guy in Kevon Looney who was ruled out for the series, um, you know, who ended up missing two games, um, you know, and, and is playing with, with, with an injury that you, you can watch, watch him guard Marcus on the post, watch how he turns his body to protect himself because he knows if he takes that shot to the, to the, you know, the shoulder that's hurt, um, he knows he's in, in trouble. Um, you know, would you would it have been more poetic to see kind of Kevin Durant bite his lip and just limp around out there? Um, yeah, I, I think people would want to see that and, and you know would view him differently. But but again, I just think like if you're not right and you can't help the team, there's no point in playing. Um, and, and you know I'm I'm going to take him at his word that he's injured at this point. Um, we'll see tonight if he comes out tonight and, and looks like a million bucks. Um, I think it'll be fair to wonder why he wasn't out there sooner. Dan Wojcik. It, it, it's really kind of a lose-lose for him, Jim, at this point. If he plays poorly, people will blame him. Um, if he plays well, people will be like, why wasn't he out here for games you know, three and four? Right. Dan Wojcik joining us. So, Dan, what about if Golden State loses, yep. when you consider how much mileage there is on that team right now and what could happen with Durant, is this the end of their run or could they somehow run it back once again? I mean, I think they'll be contenders, right? I mean, Steph Curry is an MVP caliber player. Clay Thompson, who you know, I assume will resign as an All NBA type player. Um, they've done a pretty good job with development um, with guys like Looney, who's also a free agent, by the way, who's been a really key guy for them. Um, but what they have to do is, if they're going to run it back, they'll have to rebuild their depth, right? And that's what we've seen this series is obviously when you have sort of the front loaded talent that the Warriors have, when you've got you know four guys. Um, that you're paying a ton of money to in Curry, Thompson, Draymond Green, and, and Kevin Durant, not to mention Andre Iguodala and Sean Livingston, who have like decent-sized paychecks. Um, you know, it gets really thin after that. Um, you know, you know, and, and they need to draft and develop and kind of rebuild their bench. That's the biggest difference in this series in a lot of ways as you look at sort of the impact guys like Fred Van Vliet, Norman Powell, Serge Ibaka um, have had on these games versus the impact of guys off the Warriors bench, guys like Alfonso McKinney. Um, and it's not even close, Jim. Um, you know, the, the Raptors bench has been terrific. has totally outplayed ter- um, the Warriors bench. And if Golden State has sort of a, a second chapter or a third chapter, I guess, to this dynasty, um, that's going to be a place where they're going to have to do it. They're going to have to get more from kind of players four through seven on their roster. And, they, and I think they'll be able to, right? Like they'll have some money freed up. Um, they'll, they'll have a little more flexibility. They'll be able to make some moves in free agency. But the, the kind of the guys they have right now, the supporting cast they have right now, around sort of the, the top four, it isn't good enough. They're a good enough team to out-talent anybody in the NBA when they're healthy. Um, but when they're beaten up like this, like some of those sort of like roster problems get exposed. You know, They don't have a lot of depth. Um, I was watching game three um, very early on, and you, and you look at Steph Curry on the court, obviously without Klay Thompson, without Kevin Durant, and it was jarring to see how little shooting was actually on the floor with him um, for a team that sort of made its bones as, as a shooting team. And, and, you know, it was just I had never seen him play with so little spacing. And it, it's just, you know, I think that's sort of stuff that needs to be addressed moving forward for the Warriors. Just some tweaks, some tweaks on the fringes to get kind of better role players, um, guys more capable of stepping in if sort of, you know, Injuries like this happen, um, but but yeah, I mean, I think they're certainly they'd be contenders. I, I think it's sort of the end of them being the prohibitive favorites. 
Dan Wojcik joining us. Look, they're in deep tonight. They're in deep tonight. But to write these guys off, I mean, given the organization, given the ownership group, given Bob Myers, given Steve Kerr, if they're all there, Clay, Steph, I would not write these guys off, but they are in deep tonight. He is a national NBA writer for the LA Times. He is a very good friend of the program. He is the proud owner of a male dog named B. Arthur. Dan, way to break that down. Good job, man. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jim. Take care. Toronto with a chance to end the dynasty tonight. Then you've got the Warriors down 3-1 in the finals. Normally a pretty good time to smash the panic button, but if they're gripping, they're not showing it. Klay Thompson not only appeared to not be panicking, he appeared to break out the Kawhi laugh when he was asked a question. We all know about game six, Klay, but there might not be a game six. Are we going to see a game five, Klay, instead now? Uh, you're going to see me and you're going to see me being myself and you're just going to see a resilient warrior team Uh, we've been backed our backs against the wall before with this same group oh man only clay only freaking clay if in fact that's what I think it was because that sounds pretty much exactly like Kawhi except it's coming from clay as an example Here's Kawhi. Here's Clay. Kawhi. Clay. I mean, I could do that for the rest of the program, just back and forth. I could do that for the rest of the program and just try to figure out who is who. But that's not the important thing right now for the Warriors. The most important thing right now for the Warriors is figuring out a way to do Toronto in their own house on a night when they've got a chance to clinch, on a night where Jurassic Park is filled with people who've been sleeping over for the last couple of days. Most important thing is finding a way to get this thing back to Oakland. The second most important thing is figuring out if Kevin Durant is going to play tonight. Now, it looks like he will. Personally, I think he'll be out there. I think he'll give it a go. Now, to be real about this, I've got to say, the Kevin Durant injury situation has been weird. Like, really, really weird. And normally, as you know, this is where I say, weird is good. But not this weird. This type of weird is just that. It's just weird. Like, remember when the Warriors swept the Blazers in the Western Conference Finals, and the thinking was good, good, because now they'll have more than a week off, almost a week and a half off, and then KD will be ready for the Finals, except he wasn't. DeMarcus Cousins came back first, and then KD traveled to Toronto for the first two games, so the thought was, yeah, maybe he doesn't play in the opener, but he'll be ready for game two, but he didn't. And then he was going to return midway through the series, which meant maybe game three, but it wasn't that either. But if not game three, then certainly game four. Then that didn't happen. And now the Warriors are on the brink of elimination. Now we're told he might play because he finally practiced. And again, I think that he will go. But I definitely thought that he would have played by now. Like, I'm pretty sure he'll play tonight, but I was certain that he would have played by now. I mean, we're talking about arguably the best player in the world. One of the most competitive guys ever. There's no debating that. And he's got teammates who are busted up, and they're out there doing whatever they can to keep that dynasty alive. You know that guy wants to be there, right? 
And we're not talking about some meaningless regular season games either. They're playing for the Larry O. So yeah, the whole thing is weird. It's just weird. And he did practice yesterday, which is good. But as ESPN's Nick Friedel tweeted, quote, if KD got some work in today against the rest of his teammates, it wasn't much. He was one of the first players back in the locker room and the Warriors weren't on the floor very long to begin with, end quote. So the good news is he practiced. The bad news is they weren't on the floor very long and he was the first one back in. And then he was seen leaving the arena without a limp. Again, good news. But he had ice on his calf slash Achilles. So that might not be so good. I mean, that's the thing, right? Here's the thing. It's impossible to know what's going on. Like, was the injury worse than the Warriors let on in the first place? Or has it gotten worse over time? Is it just gamesmanship by the team? Is it KD? Who the hell knows? Nobody knows. It's just so weird and so bizarre that a two-time finals MVP, one of the greatest players of all time, has not played in this series, and nobody has any idea if and when he is going to play. That's weird. One of the greatest players ever has been reduced to high-fiving guys in the tunnel at halftime and after games, and yet it's not the biggest story. Nobody really knows what to say about this whole thing. Now, I want to be very clear about this. I didn't open up my mouth and have a bunch of lava come spewing out. This is not about challenging or questioning Durant's toughness. It's not about that. It's certainly not about spinning it into some lame free agency narrative. Not at all. Again, the guy wants to be out there. Any competitor would want to be out there, especially when he knows what's going on. His team is gassed out. They're struggling without him. They need him. And you know when he sees guys like Clay and Looney busting their asses to get back on the court. And Steph Curry and Andre Iguodala and Draymond Green playing through what they're playing through. You know he wants to rejoin that fight. He wants to be out there. Because it's not some January road trip. It's the NBA Finals. What? You think this guy doesn't want to ring? You think he doesn't want another ring. You think he's good with the couple he has. You think he doesn't want to come back tonight and lead the Warriors to three straight wins and get another finals MVP. You think that guy doesn't want to be the guy who leads Golden State back from down three games to one. It would be legendary. It would be an all-time great comeback. You think he doesn't want that? Hell yes, he does. And you know his teammates want him back because that team is busted up and gassing out. Man, they're tough. They're proud. They're good. But they've played more than 500 games over the past five years. By my count, tonight will be their 104th playoff game of this run. So that's not only an extra season and a quarter That's an extra season and a quarter of high-pressure playoff games. Man, it adds up. It takes a toll. It catches up. And that toll is being paid right now by all these guys. Look at them. They're exhausted. They're broken down. They're sitting on empty. And now they've got to go up against a machine in Toronto that was really smart and really careful about managing Kawhi's minutes throughout the regular season. So if there was ever a time 
for the Warriors to get that injection, that emotional and energetic lift from somebody returning, it's right now. So again, the question, is Kevin Durant going to play tonight? All signs point to yes, at least right now. Then the other question, what kind of a Kevin Durant do you get? What kind of a KD do you get if he does go tonight? After over a month and all of one practice. I could argue that any percentage of Kevin Durant is better than no percentage of Kevin Durant. But I could also argue this. If that guy's out there, there is no doubt Toronto goes right at him defensively the moment he steps on the floor. If he steps on the floor. They're going to want to test that calf. They're going to want to see what this guy has. And the entire basketball world wants to see it too. I know this much. I don't hear any dopes arguing that Golden State's better without Kevin Durant. Because nobody who matters would have ever tried to argue that point. Brilliant take, dudes who sling lava. You mean you're better without a dude who's got a 7'5 wingspan, who can get his own shot up and over pretty much anybody who has ever played the game whenever he wants. You're better without that guy. And not to mention, that's not the only thing the guy can do to help you. Oh, okay. All right, fine. But I'm telling you, some people will throw any kind of bleep up against the wall just to see whether or not it sticks. That said, as I mentioned earlier, some of this guy is better than none of this guy, but some of this guy in and of itself is not going to be enough to send that thing back to Oakland. They need more. They need somebody else to show up and ball out. He can't be the only one if he does. Clay and Steph cannot play one and a half on five and beat Toronto. So again, my bottom line here, I'm not going to question this guy's toughness. I'm not going to question this guy's willingness to play through what he's dealing with. I think a lot of you have an amazing threshold for his pain. This guy's an all-time great. If he could be out there, I'm sure he would be. But I do want to say, the whole thing is weird. It's just weird. It's just weird that we have no idea. It's just weird that we don't know. I'm Kevin Durant. You know who I am. It's just weird. And then some of you might be thinking, yeah, Rome, they're saying the right things, but how do you think his teammates really feel? You know, Clay's out there on one leg. Looney's out there, and he was supposed to be out the rest of the series. How do they really feel? I don't know. Let's go to the guy who normally says exactly how he feels, Draymond Green. As far as KD, uh, you know, there's been hope that he will come back the whole series. So, you know, that's not going to change now. Obviously, we hope to have him, but we'll see what happens. Um, you know, we don't make that final call. Uh, his, he don't really even make that final call. His body will tell him if he can get out there or not. And if he can, great. If not, we still got to try to find a way to win the next game. One game at a time. You got to find a way to do it. They've been on the other side of this. Cleveland did them when they were down three games to one. Hey, is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential and it's so convenient. Get help at your own time and at your own pace. 
you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it is a truly affordable option, and my listeners get 10% off their first month by going to betterhelp.com slash Rome. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash Rome, simply fill out a questionnaire, and then get matched up with a counselor that you'll love. Once again, betterhelp.com slash Rome. Patrick Cantley is my guest. Patrick, really good to have you on. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Jim. Great to have you, Patrick. So listen, I know you're focused on the U.S. Open already, but if you could, can you take me back to last weekend? Any win on the PGA Tour is special, but knowing your history with Jack Nicholas, how special was that win at the Memorial? Yeah, it just it, it feels like it started such a long time ago, winning the Nicholas Award um, back in 2011 after my freshman year at UCLA. So going to the golf course and seeing him there and accepting the award, you know, almost eight years ago, um, it's a little surprising, or it would have surprised me then to say, you know, by 2019, you would have only played the tournament three times. So, um, you know, knowing him for all these years and being able to play the way I did, um, you know, in front of him and win the tournament with him on 18 and being able to shake his hand after playing one of the best rounds of golf I've ever played. It was extremely special. See, the thing is, Patrick, you didn't just shake his hands. When you were coming off 18, he actually gave you a hug. And as we talked about, you were the winner of the Jack Nicklaus Award when you were in college. Jack said that he regards you and the other winners of that award as, quote, in many ways, my children, end quote. He also said that you kind of remind me of me. What does it mean to you that he's got that level of care for you, that kind of respect for you? Yeah, I mean, it, it means it means so much. It's hard to put into words. You know, he's, he's, in my opinion, the greatest to ever play the game. And his record, when you look at the numbers, is absolutely incredible. Uh, he's helped me over the last few years, and I've picked his brain. And um, I'm a member at his golf course down in Florida, the Bears Club uh, in Jupiter. And... Um, he just has been there for me whenever I've I've needed a um, you know any advice or or any little tidbit of help and I'm I'm definitely um, I'm definitely grateful for all the stuff that he's helped me with and you know I showed up at I showed up at Memorial last week and I, I said hi to him and I was with a couple other guys we had just flown in and I was having dinner at the club and he came by and I said you know hi Mr Nicholas how's it going he goes hi Patrick and then straight in straight right away he goes you know, you got to figure out how to play those last 30 minutes. He goes, you you got to learn how to finish the golf tournament. You've been playing good, but you you got to learn how to win. So he kind of gave me a little a little kick in the butt, you know, right when I showed up on Monday. And um, you know, given that and given our relationship, it was really cool to finish it off the way I did. I love that. Patrick Cantlay joining us. That's a great story. So if we go back to November, you had been stacking top 10 finishes. I mean, prior, put aside that conversation you had with Jack, did you know that a win was coming or do you not really ever know that until it happens? It definitely feels like I had been building, it felt like I had been building momentum for a long time. And I kind of remarked to my caddy on Sunday at Memorial on the front nine, uh, when Martin Keimer was making all those birdies, and it felt like no matter how many birdies I made, I wasn't going to catch catch him. Um, I kind of turned to my caddy and go, you know, Matt, it, it feels like we've had this Sunday. It's like Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. Like, we just we just keep having the same darn Sunday over and over and over again where we're up near the lead, but we're not quite, we're not quite in the lead. And, um, you know, I think 
having that experience every week and having it feel more comfortable and having it feel more like watching TV on your couch, you know, Sunday in contention, um, it definitely helps and, and made me be able to relax and feel more comfortable because I'd been in that position so many times this year. So, Patrick, people who are familiar with your story know that you grew up playing in Long Beach. When did you first get into golf, and what was it about the game that hooked you? Well, uh, it's kind of funny. Um, you know, I never imagine, I can never remember a time where I didn't play golf. So both sides of my family uh, grew up playing golf, and um, you know, I played a lot of golf when I was really young with, with my grandfather and with my dad, and they're both good players. So... I just kind of always had played the game. And then about, you know, seventh, eighth, ninth grade, I realized I was getting worse at all the other sports compared to all the other kids. You know, I played baseball and baseball and basketball. I realized I was getting worse at that, but I was getting better at everybody in golf. So I, I decided to uh, just stick with only golf once I got to high school. Well, that's true. You were getting better. Patrick Cantley, my guest, you were getting better at golf than everybody. In fact, when you went to UCLA, you were the best golfer in the country you shot a 60 at the Travelers as an amateur. You turned pro in 2012. You're leading the web.com money list in 2013. But then you show up at the Fort Worth Invitational one day. You're warming up. You feel a pain in your back. How bad was that pain, and what did you think at that time? Yeah, um, I'd been on a stretch of playing a lot of golf, and I had been playing decent. Um, and I was warming up, and it just there was like a couple swings, and one swing in particular – it felt like, you know, somebody put a knife in my back, um, just straight to my knees. And um, I didn't know at the time. Um, I knew it was serious. I actually tried to play that day. I played nine holes um, before I withdrew. Um, and I knew it was serious, but uh, I didn't know it was as serious as, it, serious as it was. I actually broke a bone in my back. Um, it was a stress fracture, and, and those couple swings were the last straws that broke the camel's back. Uh, you know, to have a cliche saying, um, but it was bad and, uh, it took me a long, long time to recover and to, and to feel, to feel like myself again. You know, I wonder about that, Patrick, because anybody can attest to this who's had back pain. It can be all consuming and it's the only thing you think about and feel whether you're golfing or not. I mean, you're thinking about your back, you're in such pain. What was that time like? And did you ever think that it might be over before you even got a chance to play your best golf? You know, it's funny, but when it first happened, I thought, you know, I'll be good in two weeks. Hmm. You know, I'll be <laughs> just give me a week to rest, and I'll be ready, and I'll be back at it. And that was kind of the the young, young aspirational golfer side of me. Um, you know, the nothing bad had ever happened to me side of me, thinking, you know, oh, it's just a minor setback. I'll be back in, you know, at most a month. Um, but you are right, um, and anybody who has or had back has had back pain knows. It affects everything you do. You don't feel like you can do anything like you used to, even uh, something you take for granted, like sleeping or watching TV on the couch. Um, and it definitely took an approach, an all-encompassing approach, where I didn't really sit for very, very often or very long periods of time. I, 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 I still do and, and learn to just watch TV laying on the floor because it's better for my back and I, I, I feel better that way. Um, and it just it took a lot it took a lot more than I thought it would to overcome that injury, and um, I actually feel like I'm in a better spot today uh, because I went through that injury and I, and I have the right protocols and the right team in place to make sure that I'm feeling 
as good as I possibly can all the time. Patrick Cantlay joining us, coming off a big win at the Memorial. You know, Patrick, I want to be very respectful how I ask you about this. And truthfully, I wasn't sure that I would, but you just said something that was interesting, that this notion that nothing bad had ever happened to me, and then one of the worst things ever that could happen to anybody happened in 2016 when your friend and your caddy, Chris Roth, was killed by a hit-and-run driver in Newport Beach. I can't begin to imagine how painful that must have been for you and everybody close. It was clear how close the two of you were. For those who did not know him, what was Chris like as a person? He was just an extremely loyal, fun-loving guy. Um, He was the type of guy you'd want to be around in any situation that you were in, whether it be a, a, you know, a work, a work situation like us on on the golf course, um, or, you know, a time where you're feeling down, he was, you know, the best guy to have around, or if you were out having a party and, uh, and, you know, enjoying time with friends, he was always, um, you know, uh, just such a great energy to be around that you could feed off of. And it felt like, whenever he was around, you know, everyone was having an even better time. Um, and so he was just, he was just a quality person through and through and, and somebody I feel very lucky to have spent so much time with and, um, shared so many, uh, you know, really monumental experiences for me. You know, when I first came out and started, like when you said, when I shot 60 at travelers and, and was playing so well in college, he was on the bag for me. So, it was just such a great time, and um, we were doing so many cool things together, and uh, I'll definitely cherish those moments forever. Some really nice thoughts. You know, I've got to ask you then, when you're dealing with a devastating back injury and then you deal with a horrific tragedy, you know, as a young person trying to find his way, how did you find the strength and the focus to keep going and come out the other end? Uh, it's a good question, um, and I'll try, I'll try and give you the, the – the best mm, honest answer I can Uh, you know after going through all that it was just it was the most devastating two events Um, one Chris's death being way bigger uh, than the golf uh, side of it you know I knew I could always do something um, something in the business world or I could change my focus from golf but that uh, his death was so devastating for me that you know that was by far and away larger, but coupling the two together and having them happen at similar times, uh, you know, uh, right when he died, I had my, the doctor said, you know, you got to take a year off from golf. So I couldn't even play golf for, you know, 10 months after, after the accident happened. And, um, that time was so difficult for me that I, it really felt, it felt as though absolutely nothing mattered. It felt like, the worst possible thing could happen or the best possible thing could matter could happen. And I would still be at the lowest possible low. And, um, the only really way I felt like I overcame that was having time to kind of let the wounds heal and to, to help me, um, get some space between it. So I could summon up the, you know, the courage and the, and the, emotional effort it took to like pick up the, the pieces of me and like keep going. Um, and you know, I, I, 
it got to be a point maybe six or nine months down the road when I knew golf was, I could start to maybe start to hit some golf balls again. And I knew that was on the horizon where I, I came home one day and I got really, really upset and, and almost angry. And I don't, I don't have a lot of emotion, but I, I got pretty angry uh, just with myself. And I said, you know, I have to figure out a way to get everything back and I have to figure out a way to, to figure this out. And, um, I just got so angry that I decided I'm not going to let anything get in my way and I'm going to take it one day at a time and I'm going to wake up at the beginning of the day and decide today I'm going to do everything I possibly can. And I just strung together day after day after day of that. And, um, you know, after a while, I saw that I made progress, and that 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 helped me, like helped me get some momentum. And I've been trying to still ride that wave uh, to this day. Well, man, I can't say how much I appreciate and respect that response, Patrick Cantlay, PGA Tour go- golfer, sixth in the FedEx Cup rankings. He won the Memorial last weekend, and it's another big week. The U.S. Open starts Thursday at Pebble Beach. Patrick, I know that's not an easy conversation to have. Again, I really appreciate you. I really respect that very much. And thanks so much for taking time. Congrats on the win. Good luck this week. Thanks very much. Uh, going to go up to U- U.S. Open this week and should be a great one up at Pebble. I think it's the best U.S. Open venue, so it should be good TV, and I'm definitely going to enjoy being up there. Good for you. Let's talk again soon. I appreciate it. Right. Thanks, Jim. Eddie Olchek is my guest. Eddie, it's so good to talk to you once again. Great to have you back. Ed, how are you? Hey, Jim, I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me. And let's play now. Let's play the game seven now. <laughs> let's play it right now. Wouldn't that be great? All right, so I've long yeah. argued that the greatest two words in sports are game seven. Yeah. We can't play yeah. it tonight. We have to wait till Wednesday for the Stanley Cup. Before we get into yeah. last night, Ed, how excited are you for that game seven? Well, I mean, I'm totally jacked up. This is what you work all the regular seasons for, uh, the regular season games for, Jim, and then you get into the playoffs. And, you know, you, you look and you see and you go, okay, well, you know, I kind of I like Winnipeg. I like Tampa. Boy, if Tampa goes down, Boston can find their way. St. Louis is an interesting team, and, and here we are going to a Game 7. I'm not surprised to see a Game 7. I thought from the start I said you know, we'd go seven games. And, you know, two teams are – pretty damn equal when you look at it. I mean, I think Boston is the quicker team when the game is allowed to be that way, but St. Louis and Craig Berube, uh, just full disclosure, I'm tired of hearing the interim tag on Craig Berube. He's done a hell of a job, Jim. They should just drop that thing. He's going to be the coach. I mean, he's done a, a great job of coaching that team since taking over, I believe, in November. And, and you know, and at times they've had their way with the Bruins. And look, two of the three wins that the Blues have had were when we're happened when uh, Bruins defenseman went down in particular games. Matt Grizzlick earlier in the series went down. The Blues won that game. Chara took the puck to the face. They went down to 5D. They ended up winning that game. But in saying that, uh, St. Louis seems to me, well, I shouldn't say seems to me, record-wise, Jim, and just the eye test tells me they're a better team on the road than they are at home. I mean, they're one game under 500 at home in the playoffs, which is just absolutely incredible. Three of their wins were their best wins with the way that they were able to close out series in rounds one, two, and three. And unfortunately for the Blues and their fans, they weren't able to do that last night. Uh, they've been really good in those closeout games earlier in the playoffs. But other than that, they've been average at home. And uh, that's one of the reasons why we're going to Game 7 in Boston on Wednesday night. Eddie Olchek joining us. Ed, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, St. Louis has been better on the road than they are at home. You know, you can't separate the special teams, especially after what happened last night. But if you look at yeah. these two squads, Eddie, five on five, five on five, who do you yeah. think is the better team? 
I would give a slight advantage to the Bruins just because I think they have a little bit more depth as far as the offensive finish. Um, you know, the numbers would bear out and say it's a coin flip, and it has been, and some people may argue, and, and I wouldn't argue against them, that up until last night, five on five, the Blues were the better team in this series. But again, what I mentioned about the Bruins going down defensemen in two of the three losses that they had in the series, I would just go five on five, Jim. I would just give the edge to the Bruins, A, because they've been there, the core have been there. And uh, I think that they have a little bit more of an offensive polish or finish when it comes to five on five uh, offensive goals. Eddie Olchek joining us, Game 7 Wednesday night, and another number that really jumps out, the Bruins are 25-1 and in the postseason yeah. when Brad Marchand scores. Is that number like some kind of crazy anomaly and a coincidence, or does it say something about his impact on the game? Uh, I mean, the numbers are what they are. I'm sure the analytic guys are, are having a field day. Uh, I should say guys, men and women. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think sometimes you just you see those numbers and you just go, "Wow, man!" When this guy gets when he puts the puck in the in the back of the net, the Bruins got a hell of a chance of winning. And then you're like, "Look, I mean, you know how?" how I, I guess the way to, to 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 answer that maybe is, you know, he plays in a lot of key situations. He is out there when the game is on the line. Uh, he has become a go-to guy. He has the ability to be able to agitate, get into the blue paint, uh, try to get in the grill of the of the goaltender. Uh, he's become a really, really complete player here, Jim, over the course of the last couple of years. I think probably within the last three years, uh, I, I would argue that Brad Marchand has turned into one of the top 15 forwards in the entire National Hockey League. And that's saying something because a couple of years ago, he was on the path of you know, being a guy that was going to be off the rails and spending a lot of time in the penalty box and being suspended. And we know the antics of the, the licking episode there in, in the Tampa series and, and against Toronto a couple of years ago. And, you know, look, I think he has matured. I think he's understood and he knows he's much more valuable on the ice. But the numbers are what they are. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Bruins fans and, and uh, the Bruins organization are hoping that those numbers continue if you can find a way to put the puck in the back of the net in the game seven. Good friend Eddie Ochek joining us once again on the program. So Boston, Eddie had the early lead, which was huge, but then St. Louis yeah. was still putting a lot of pressure on them, which leads us to the impact of Tuka Rask, who had 28 saves. Yeah. Man, he's had some big, big playoff performances in his career. How big was he last night? Uh, he was very good, Jim. I've said all playoff long, I have not seen Tuka Rask play better than he has in the Stanley Cup playoffs. I mean, you go back to round one. Uh, everybody talks about St. Louis's resiliency of being dead last in the National Hockey League in the first couple of days of January, and here they are, one win away from the Stanley Cup. And you know, they, they, the third round against San Jose, they had that hand pass go against them at home, and they were down in a series, and then they won the next couple, and the rest is history. So the boss is no different. I mean, they've been a resilient team uh, without question. But Tuukka Rask has been so good. Like To me, I don't think there's any doubt. If the Bruins win, he's the MVP of the playoffs. There's no doubt in my mind. I've not seen him play better. He looks very comfortable. He's very much in control. Is he giving up a bad goal or two in a playoffs, Jim? Yeah, absolutely. Mo most goalies do. But I'll tell you what, it's, it's like you can sit there and go, you can make an argument of how good he has been and sit there and argue the goals that have gone in and go, you know what? This guy has been as near perfect as we've seen as a goaltender in a long, long time. And when you get goaltending like that, Jim, and you know this game, when you get goaltending like that, you can play on your toes. You can play to your strengths. 
and uh, it gives you uh, an incredible confidence. I, I can just speak to being on a team that won a Stanley Cup, as you mentioned earlier in the intro, in New York in 94 with the Rangers. Mike Richter gave us a chance every night, and we knew, hey, if we gave up a two-on-one or we gave up a breakaway or we gave up a three-on-one, there's a pretty darn good chance he was going to have our back. And I think talking to a lot of the Bruins players, they know if they make a mistake somewhere on that ice surface and the puck ends up in the front of the net, they got a pretty good chance that the guy's going to bail them out. So I have not seen him play better. And uh, that's uh, that's pretty good stuff if you're a Bruins fan. Eddie Olchek all over this. NBC's got this on Wednesday. Eddie, this is your time of year. Pucks and ponies. Before you go, what did you make of how the Belmont Stakes played out? Well, I, I did use Sir Winston in, in my tries. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I got lucky with a saber exactly with him winning. Uh, the price was very good. He had a race over the track. And, you know, we ran extremely well. I think it was a tale of two trips, Jim. You've been there as an owner, and you're there as a, as a fan. Like Sir Winston got the trip on the inside, tasted as the horse that I liked, was four wide on the first turn. When you're going a mile and a half, that's not a good thing. Uh, wide, you know, on the backside a bit, and then turn it for home, went extremely wide, and Sir Winston got the trip. And, uh, look, I think Tacit has ended up running two miles, and I think Sir Winston ended up running a mile and a half, which is distance to Belmont, and probably end up costing uh, Tacit as the race. But that's horse racing. Uh, I, thought it was an, I thought it was a very good race. It was a very good race day overall. Uh, and it was great to be a part of the uh, third drill of the Triple Crown for NBC on Saturday. Eddie, I'm with you. It's all about the trip. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. All right, so finally, what kind of a game are you expecting on Wednesday night? And really, what does St. Louis need to do between now and then? Yeah, I think their strength, Jim, is they're, they're going to play their strength. Again, I, I think it's a coin flip game. I do. I mean, I thought the Bruins would win in seven, so I'm not going to change like a lot of my colleagues over the last three or four games have been doing. I'm going to stay what I said right before the start of the series. But in saying that, we touched on it earlier, Jim. The Blues are very comfortable on the road. They play very well on the road. So that that is not going to – they're going to have to weather the storm because you figure the Bruins are going to come out and the, and the Bruins fans are going to – it's going to be a gong show in Beantown on, on Wednesday night. They're going to have to weather the storm. But the one thing that the Blues do very well is – and I've talked a lot about it probably at nauseum for people watching the games – is that the Blues really like to press up their defense. And what I mean by that is that when the puck is in the offensive zone – their D like to creep in there and keep pucks alive, keep keep plays alive in the offensive zone. Jim, you know this. The best defense in the world is when you got the rock in your hand or the rock is on your stick. That's the best defense. And I think when the Blues are pressing up, they have a big team. They have some guys that can make some plays, but they have very mobile defensemen. So I said, which team defense can be able to defend enough would end up winning the Stanley Cup. And I think for the Blues to be able to do that, um, they're going to have to play 200 feet away from the young goaltender. And when they do that, they give teams fits, and that's why they're only one win away. And I think for Boston, they want to try to play fast. They want to try to get their D involved off the rush, which they did a couple of times last night. And uh, somehow, some way, when you have goaltenders that are in a zone, especially like Tuka Rask, the Blues have to play that game of chicken, so to speak. you got to hold on to that puck a second longer. You want to shoot it, but he knows what you're going to do before you do it. So you got to hold on to that puck a second longer, and uh, it should be one hell of a game on, uh, on Wednesday night in Boston. It's going to be amazing. Greatest two words in sports, Game 7. Eddie Ocek, the lead NHL analyst and horse racing analyst for NBC Sports. That game is Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern on NBC. Ed, have a great couple of days, and we'll be watching you on Wednesday. Thanks, pal. Talk to you soon. You too, Eddie. Thank you so much.
Dan in Denver is doing just that. What's up, Dan? What's up, Rum? The most shocking part of that Bodie call was that he has a Hulu. Rum, I heard the Cabinetian player profile, but can you call it a player profile when the only thing Sean's played is Russian roulette with his house? When they call you the idol maker, and that's true. Look no further than the Cablinasian. He parlayed this thing into his own weekly show. Sean, you host a show once a week that no one listens to. Who are you, the Woodscopes? Sean, you and I both get on CBS Airwaves a couple minutes a week. We're paid about the same, too. I like how Sean showed up with Carbone last year wearing a Letterman jacket from two decades ago. Beer gut spilling out the front so it doesn't zip anymore. Ten years between calls. Bro, this isn't a high school reunion. You all but rented a Ferrari for the night. People didn't even recognize you. They just whispered, that's the guy who used to be really good at calling a radio show. He doesn't look very good anymore. Everyone else has a beautiful wife and kids now. You're just a pasty, overweight, lame, still hanging on to that weekly show. He's still doing the same stuff since high school. He's just a lot less good at it. A really fresh idea doing a tandem call with Carbone. Dude, you should call from a helicopter or bum rush the studio this year. Or I know, do a parody of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Romy can't just see Sean asking Siri how many titles he won. Sean, why don't you do us all another favor and go away for 10 years? I'll see you in the smack-off 35, bitch. Dan in Denver. I mean, if you're waiting for the chopper to come and shred that guy's ticket, that's not happening. Baba, Bodie, what's up? Hey, what's up, Bubba? How you doing, Bodie? What's up? News, and then I got to run some smack for the smack off. I know I ain't gonna get no damn pro player profile, but that's all right. But listen here, Bubba. Uh, my best friend in all the Clone Nation is Rich Flores, and I love that some bitch man. He wants to fly me out to that party out there they's having. And I think I might take him up. I'll, in the words of Madison Bumgarner, I'm going to do what I want. And, Bubba, you know I was watching the Hulu the other day, and I saw Rich Ackerman. And then I saw Ike. And I was like, what the hell is this, a whack-ass Mount Rushmore? I mean, Rich Ackerman has looked horrible, man. That neck, man, he, what the hell is that? He needs to circumcise that some bitch. Get a beard or wear a turtleneck, man. He looked like a fake-ass Donald Grump or something. Well, Bubba, I don't know. I, I'm flipping out, man. I got to go. I love you. I'm out. Bodie in Pearland. If ever there was a reason to allow personal appearance as show fodder, it might just be so Bodie and Pearland can call up and break it all down. I was checking out the Hulu, and I saw Rich Ackerman. I don't even want to paraphrase what he said. I did. The only part that I can remember was him talking about how Rich needs to have his neck circumcised. And he saw Ike. And is this some kind of whack-ass Mount Rushmore or something? Let me very quickly go to the phones as we effort Eddie. Let's go to Portland. Kay in Portland. Hey, Kay, how are you? Fine, Jimmy. Hey, thanks for the thanks for the vine. You got it. What's I'm going so on? Excited about the viewing party, and I just wanted to thank all the clones in Portland, all the work they're doing, putting it together, and having it here. Um, I'm really excited. Like, I'm, I can't wait to meet all the other clones. So, Kay, can you remind me where is the viewing party in Portland? It's at the radio station. Seven fifty. The game is going to have that. Well, okay. Okay, you got it. Okay, that racker. Right? Thanks, Kay. You got it. Great talking to you. No, si- sincerely, Kay. Racker.
the R-E-X in the ABQ. Hello, Rex. Hey, Jimmy. I think Mav is already on his Peloton training for this fight, but who's Mav's cut man going to be? Is it going to be Hollywood or Wolfman? And are they going to oil up on the beach before the bout? But I just quickly wanted to hit on your open. The Warriors are just gripping. I mean, they're busted up. They're lipping along. They might as well just be put down. Signed, the Santa Anita Racetrack. Ah! That's classic. No. You don't like that color. I don't like that color. Not a very good color. Hey, Rex, why don't you do what you always do? Call this show, say something regrettable, and then run around Twitter and get high-fived by the three dopes who think that's funny. Good night now!